Uh, as we often say, happy Sabbath. You know, sometimes I think we should expand our vocabulary a little bit, uh, like, like restful Sabbath or peaceful Sabbath or... But anyway, uh, it's great to see so many of you here. I think there's probably four times the number than last night. Uh, if you missed last night, I encourage you to try to listen or watch the recording. This is a three-part series that builds each one on the other. Uh, we're dealing with big issues, dealing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, the Godhead, and also lessons from Adventist history that are very valuable to us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, this is, as I mentioned, part two, and I've decided to call this series Alpha Omega Meet It. Does that sound like an intriguing title? Some of you are familiar with those words in the history of our church, and we read a little bit last night about how Jesus referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, he wants to be everything to us. That's for sure. So let's pray another prayer. I know we prayed, but I always like to pray before I speak. So uh, let's bow our heads. A dear Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, our precious Savior, who someday we hope to see face to face and to live with you uh, forever. And we pray for your blessing as we get into this very and help me as I speak. Empty me of me that your voice may be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible says that the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more till what day? To the perfect day, right? Now, the, I, I think the basic idea of this verse is that uh, when we are following God, when we are on the path of the just, that God gives us more and more light as we continue on our journey. Uh, there's none of us that know everything, right? We all have things to learn, isn't that right? Uh, we all need a, a certain degree of humility in order to learn new things. Uh, and if you look at history, and if you look at the history of the Adventist church, you see light advancing, light grows. And again, none of us knows everything uh, I'm the first to admit that from myself, certainly. When we talk about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, there are a lot of things that we just don't understand, and we need to be content with that. But there are other things that God wants us to understand, and he wants us to continue to learn and to grow as we get closer to the perfect day, which ultimately is the day when Jesus comes, and I think it's also uh, a day when we've... Uh, at least advanced enough where we've, we have a lot of light inside of our hearts and in our souls. Now, if you look at the history of the Adventist church, light has continued to grow for our people. Uh, our movement started in the 1830s with a man named William Miller. And who knows what church William Miller was a member of? 
He was, was he a Seventh-day Adventist? No, he was a Baptist. That's right. Can we learn from Baptists? Yes, he was a, a Baptist, and God called him into, into ministry. He was a farmer. He started studying the Bible, and the Holy Spirit really impressed him to start sharing what he had been learning, uh, especially in the book of Daniel and Revelation. He studied Daniel 8.14, which really gripped him, this prophecy about the 2300 days, uh, and then the sanctuary would be cleansed. And he studied that prophecy, and he did the math, and he finally concluded that the, uh, that period would end in the year 1844. And so he began to share this and preach. And he believed that in 1844, the cleansing of the sanctuary meant that Jesus was going to come, that this was the end of the world. The earth was the sanctuary. It would be cleansed by fire when Jesus came. And he started preaching the first angel's message in Revelation 14, verse 6, that the hour of God's judgment has come. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. That the judgment is here. It's coming because Jesus is about to come and the world is going to end. That's what he preached. And others joined his movement and they began to, uh, to preach with power through the Holy Spirit. And it was an interdenominational movement. There were Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Congregationalists, uh, different groups. And they preached the first angel. And then as they got closer to 1844, October 22nd, 1844, specifically, uh, there were many of the churches that rejected the other members in their churches that had accepted the first angel, and they kicked them out. And so then the Adventists, they weren't Seventh-day Adventists, they were called Adventists because they believed in the Advent, in the coming of Jesus. And then they shifted Right before, 18, before October 22nd, they shifted to the second angel's message. The Lord led them. Light came to the first, first angel, and then light advanced into the second angel. And they preached the second angel to come out of the fallen churches that had rejected the first angel. But as we all know, when October 22nd, 1844 finally hit, did Jesus come? No, he didn't. Obviously not. It's been a long time and we're still here. Uh, Jesus didn't come, and they went through uh, what we call the great disappointment, which was very similar to the disciples. The disciples of Jesus believed that when he got on the donkey and rode into Jerusalem, that he was about to set up his throne, that he was about to uh, sit on the throne and conquer the Romans and exalt the Jews, and they thought, this is fantastic. The Messiah is here. Uh, better days are ahead of us. But lo and behold, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem at that time to sit on a throne. What did he come to do? He came to allow himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. And the disciples went through a great disappointment. But on the other side of the cross, after Jesus was buried and they thought he was gone for forever... Then, lo and behold, Sunday morning, what happened? An angel came down, rolled away the stone, sat on it, and said, looked into the darkness of the tomb, and said, Son of God, your Father is calling you. And Jesus came out of the grave, the resurrection and the life. Hallelujah. And as I get older, 
I'm getting close to 65. Uh, I know that if Jesus doesn't come, that day is going to come for me. And I tell you, I am appreciating more and more the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if I die before Jesus comes, I am looking forward to being resurrected as well. In the first resurrection, not in the second resurrection. Well, anyway, uh, after the great disappointment... Uh, in 1844, there was a group of Adventists who didn't give up their faith in the movement, in the Holy Spirit, in his guidance, and in uh, how God had led them as they studied the 2300-day prophecy, and they kept studying. They kept studying different verses, and one of the key texts was in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. So let's take a look at this. Revelation 11, 19. This was a key text for those Adventist Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans who had been through the great disappointment. Uh, Revelation 11:19 says that the temple of God was opened where? In heaven. Right. So this started shifting their thinking that the temple, the sanctuary, was not the earth, but it was up there where Jesus is our great high priest. The temple of God was opened in heaven and, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and, a great, and an earthquake and a great hail. It's kind of like a Sinai language. This is a mighty verse. God was trying to get their attention. And it's, it's significant that it says there was seen in his temple the ark. It does not say, John does not say, I saw the ark. Now, throughout much of Revelation, John will say, I heard, I saw, I was told to write down what I saw. But in this verse, he doesn't say, I saw the ark. He says, there was seen the ark. And this implies that more than one person saw it. And they saw it by faith. The Adventists who went through the disappointment, they read this verse and they saw that there was a sanctuary in heaven, and they started studying the heavenly sanctuary, and they realized there was the holy place and the most holy place, and in the most holy place was the ark. And they saw that by faith. And as, as they kept reading the Bible, what did they find out was inside the ark? It was the Ten Commandments, right? That's what we find in the Old Testament. The earthly sanctuary was a, uh, a model of the heavenly sanctuary, and they realize that the Ten Commandments are up there inside the ark. And then they uh, took a closer look at the Ten Commandments, and when they got to commandment number four, what did they find? They found that the fourth commandment says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. And so these disappointed Adventists who kept on studying the Bible, just like the disciples who were disappointed at the cross, when Jesus was resurrected, Jesus led them in a Bible study in Luke 24 where they learned more. So the Adventists learned more. They discovered the heavenly temple, the ark, the law, and the Sabbath. And that's how Adventists became Seventh-day Adventists. That's how it happened. And it was because more light came to them. The path of the just is like the shining light that shines more and more to the perfect day. 
They had light on Daniel 8, 14. They had light on the first angel. Then they got light on the second angel. And after the disappointment and they discovered the Sabbath, then they, they started studying the third angel's message and they got light on the third angel. That's how it happened in the history of our church. And little by little, the light continued to shine. The blind spots began to go away and they became Seventh-day Adventists, studying the third angel's message. Uh, in 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist church was organized uh, in reference to a general conference. First, there were churches, then conferences, and then the general conference. And they had quite a battle uh, over, over organization. The, many of the Adventists thought if we become organized, we're going to become like Babylon. And James White and others said, no, that's not right. We've got to be organized. The body is organized and if we don't get organized, we can't do the work of giving the three angels' messages. So light came on organization. Light came on the beast and the image and the mark of the third angel's message. In the early 1860s, light came on health. That those who are giving the three angels' messages need to be healthy. I was thinking about this today, and I shared this with my friend. Uh, did you, I was just thinking about this. The three angels uh, are flying in the midst of heaven. They're flying, which means they're getting their exercise. They're way up there in heaven, which means they're getting lots of fresh air. And they're also getting plenty of sunlight. And God wanted the people who are giving the first angel, the second angel, and the third angel to be healthy and to realize that taking care of their bodies is a sacred responsibility in order for them to give God's message. Now, it's very interesting uh, that many times as the early Adventists were spreading out, James White and Ellen White would visit a church and they would have meetings, just like we're having a meeting here. And many times right after James spoke or right after Ellen White spoke, all of a sudden, in a booming voice, Ellen would say, glory, glory to God. And all of a sudden, she was in vision. And James would walk around and he would say, uh, my wife's in vision. This is uh, not unusual. It happens a lot. If there's a physician in the house, you're welcome to come up and examine her, and you will see that she has no breath in her body. She does not breathe. And there was, a, once there was a spiritualist physician in the audience, and he boasted that if I ever see Ellen White in vision, I can get her out in a minute. And so she was in vision right in front of him. And uh, he tried to get out the back door, and some of his friends blocked the door and said, go on, doctor, do what you say you can do. And so finally, he came to the front, and Ellen White, many times she would walk around, her face was glowing, she would look up, uh, and, he, and sometimes she would stand or sit, and this physician came up and put, well, sometimes, uh, many physicians would do this, I don't remember if he did it specifically, but he examined her, and sometimes they'd put a candle in front of her lips, 
candle didn't move. They put a mirror in front of her mouth, no condensation. And sometimes this lasted for two hours. And the physician said, she's got a pulse, she's alive, but there's no breath in her body. And he went out that back door as fast as he could get out. Because the spirit that was in him was not in harmony with the spirit that was in her. And this happened regularly. And God, in the history of the Advent movement, chose a weak, a frail woman to give visions and to give light to his people so that his people would learn more about what the Bible says. Just like Proverbs 4.18 says, the path of the just is like the shining light that shines more and more to the perfect day. So through Bible study, through visions, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Adventist movement continued to grow. When they got into the, the era of the 1888 era, God gave more light to Seventh-day Adventists through two young men from California. Nice state. <laughs> some, some people wonder, can any good thing come out of California? Yes, it can. Jones and Wagner came from California. You're in California. I grew up in California. God can take anybody and he can use us. Praise the Lord for that. So uh, Wagner Jones, these two uh, young men, went to uh, the 1888 General Conference session in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, especially Wagner gave Bible studies about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because after the Adventists went through the disappointment, discovered the sanctuary in heaven and the law and the Sabbath, as time went on, they preached the law so much that they began to neglect Jesus. And Ellen White said, We've, we have preached the law of the law until we're as dry as the hills of Gilboa. And we need more of Jesus. And that's what Wagner and Jones did. They preached the law and the gospel together and they lifted up Jesus as a complete savior, as our righteousness, as our only hope. The law shows us our sins, and Jesus is our savior, who saves us by his grace, the grace of God. And so they got more light about who Jesus is, that Jesus is not just, he's not just a man, and yes, he is the son of God, but he is also equal with the Father which makes his death on the cross sufficient to pay the price for our sins. It was God in human form who paid the price. Jesus is equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And light came to the early Adventists as they continued to learn about Jesus. Now, I want to read a statement here from volume 8 of the Testimonies, page uh, 287, that especially applied to a crisis that came a little bit later than 1888, in the early 1900s. So, this is what, uh, this is what we read in volume 8 of the Testimonies, page 287. It says that the revelation of himself that God has given in his word is for our study. This we may seek to understand. 
But beyond this, we are not to penetrate. The highest intellect may tax itself until it is wearied out in conjectures regarding the nature of God. But the effort will be fruitless. This problem has not been given to us to solve. No human mind can comprehend God. Let not finite man attempt to interpret him. Let none indulge in speculation regarding his nature. Here silence is eloquent. The omniscient one is above discussion. And that's a pretty a powerful quote, don't you think? And it tells me that there, there are things about God that he wants us to know. Things he wants us to understand which are in his word. But if there's other things that haven't been clearly defined in the word, we need to be content to say, well, Lord, I'm good with that. I don't understand it. I, don't, I can't connect all the dots. And I'll wait till I get to heaven and I'll ask you more when I get there. So there's some things God wants us to know and some things that are beyond our understanding. And I believe this has to do with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, God gave the early Adventists great light about these topics, but he still wanted them to learn more. They didn't have uh, everything that they needed to know. God wanted to give them more information. Uh, in the year 1894, six years after 1888, we have a very significant statement in the spirit of prophecy. And I'll read this to you. And these quotes are in my little book that just came out called Satan's War Against the Godhead. This book will be available tonight on that. I think there's a table on the other side of that table. Yes, there is. With that black cloth, there will be books there uh, after the third meeting. It's very inexpensive, just a few dollars. And I think you would be blessed if you want to pick up one of these books. So here's a statement. Review and Herald, August 7, 1894. We must not think for a moment that there is no more light, no more truth to be given to us. This is 1894. We are in danger of becoming careless by our indifference losing the sanctifying power of truth and composing ourselves with the thought, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Quoting Revelation 3.17. While we must hold fast to the truths which we, have, which we have already received, we must not look with suspicion upon any new light that God may send. So we hold on to what is clear to us in the Bible, and yet we are still humbly open to the Lord teaching us new things. And that's what Adventism is all about. From the days of William Miller uh, all the way down, step by step, they were open to learning new things. Now, of course, those things have to be biblical. They have to be biblical. We don't just open our minds up to anything that the devil might want to put inside of us, inside of our heads. Uh, somebody once said, the purpose of an open mind is to close it upon the truth. But we do need to know what the truth is. 
and we need to have an open mind to studying it. Now, in the early 1900s, as you go beyond 1894, in the early 1900s, Satan attacked our church with full guns. And he did it through one of our leaders, whose name was John Harvey Kellogg, who was a physician. Uh, in fact, he was probably the most famous physician in the world at that time. He was the, direct, the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. You've heard of him, I'm sure. If you've ever eaten Kellogg's cereal, uh, that all come, that's all part of the influence of John Harvey Kellogg. He was a brilliant man, brilliant doctor, and he taught a lot of truth and rational, natural treatments for disease. But as uh, time went on, uh, the devil got inside of him and he got off track. And he wrote a book called The Living Temple. And that book was, a, was about the body and about God, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was uh, a mixture of truth and error. And somehow he didn't connect the dots and he didn't realize that when in, in February of 1902, his beloved Battle Creek Sanitarium that people came to from all over the world for, uh, for treatment, it burned to the ground. Can you imagine, you know, a whole health facility burning to the ground? Well, that's what happened. And this was a judgment of God upon the sanitarium and upon Kellogg because his influence was uh, exerting a negative influence inside God's church, leading in the wrong direction. Well, that was in February of 1902. In December of the same year, Kellogg's book, Living Temple, was getting ready to be printed by the Review and Herald, which was the Adventist uh, publishing house in Battle Creek. So their sanitarium was burned to the ground. And then in December, the uh, Review and Herald burned to the ground. While Kellogg's book was on the, on the plates, in plate form, getting ready to be printed. And I, I mentioned this last night, many of you weren't here to hear that, but uh, one of the firemen said, there's something about those Adventist fires. Something different about them. You just can't put them out, you know, until they've consumed the building. And that was a warning, again, to Kellogg and to the Adventists. Don't get off track in the direction of living temple. But uh, Kellogg didn't connect the dots. And, you know, he was uh, brilliant, but he was stubborn. And he was arrogant. And so he decided, well, I'm going to try again, and I'm going to get my book printed from an outside printer. And he laid plans to do that, to print the book. And he wanted to take the money and, and use it to rebuild the sanitarium. That was his plan. Well, um, let me go into some of the drama that happened right after that. And a lot of quotes I'm going to share with you are from my book. Uh, they're also in a little book called Series B, 
which I mentioned last night, which is a, a small book that Ellen White wrote specifically about the Kellogg crisis that happened in 1902, 1903, etc. So, and I'm just going to quote these from my, my little book. Spirit of Prophecy said that the publication of Living Temple has brought about a crisis. So it was a crisis in our church connected to, connected to this book. Now, what was in that little book, Series B, and what was in Kellogg's book? Well, if you read the Series B series, you'll find references to things like this that Kellogg's theories were referred to as false ideas of God, a wily tissue of lies, schemes of satanic agencies, charming philosophical speculations, hypnotism exerted by the father of lies. That was all in Kellogg's book. Now, you can still get his book today on Amazon, but I don't recommend that you read it. But it's still available. Uh, Ellen White wrote, separate from the influence exerted by the book Living Temple. She urged Adventist physicians, ministers, and church members, for it contains specious sentiments. He said, there's things in that book that are dangerous. You need to be on your guard. Don't let those ideas into your head because they are coming from, from the devil. Now, um, in her writings, she pinpointed the biggest danger of Kellogg's book and she says that it has tendencies toward pantheism. Uh, Living Temple, quote, left the impression that our God omnipotent who rules in the heavens and fills all the heavens is to be found in flower and leaf and tree. Pantheistic ideas re regarding God in nature are framed by Lucifer, the fallen angel. That's what she said. So Kellogg basically started seeing God uh, in, a, in a philosophical way that he was everywhere. He was in the leaves, he was in the trees, he was in the flowers. And this is uh, what we call pantheism. Now, here's another quote that she said. And there's where we get to the title of this series, Alpha Omega Meet It. She said, be not deceived. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. The omega will be of a most startling nature. So here's the, the famous words where she refers to the alpha and the omega that was coming in to Adventism through Kellogg's book, Living Temple. Got the context here? That's what's happening. She also said, we have now before us the alpha of, or I just read that, but I'll read it again. We have now before us the alpha, and listen to this carefully, the alpha of this danger. Now, what was this danger? It was pantheism that was in Kellogg's book. 
we have now before us the alpha of this danger. The omega will be of a most startling nature. Then she said, living temple contains the alpha of these theories. The omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. Now, people have been pondering this for over a hundred years. These statements, trying to, trying to figure this out. And uh, many have, when we think about the Omega, many people have speculated, maybe the Omega is this, or maybe the Omega is that. Have you heard ideas like that? My conviction is that we should avoid speculation as much as possible. And as I've thought about this, pondered this, I've looked again closely at these quotes. She refers to the alpha of this danger. And then she says the omega would follow in a little while. And I've pondered this. I've said, Lord, help me to understand these things. I know the secret things belong to you. I can't understand everything, but what you have revealed helped me to understand. And I, I have formed an opinion on this topic, which I will share with you. Um, and it's based on another quote, which is found in Series B, Volume 7, page 48 and 49. Listen to this. She said, now the publication of Living Temple has brought about a crisis. And then she said, if the ideas presented in this book, now the ideas presented in this book were the alpha, right? The alpha of deadly heresies. And then she says, if the ideas presented in this book, Living Temple, Living Temple were received by the people of God, they would lead... And I see that as the omega. The alpha leads to the omega. And if the alpha was received, then the omega would follow. And she says they would, these ideas would lead to the uprooting of the whole construction of the faith that makes Seventh-day Adventists a chosen, denominated people. And to me, I pondered that and I thought, well, what this seems to be saying to me is if the Alpha gets in fully, then the Omega would be the uprooting of the whole structure, the whole construction of the faith that makes Seventh-day Adventists a chosen denominated people. We are a chosen denominated people. God has led us in our history from Miller uh, all the way down the line, through those different monumental points, 1844, uh, 1863, 1888, down throughout our history, God has led us as a people, and we've become an organized, chosen, denominated people. And if the Alpha got in, the whole thing would fall apart. And that certainly is not God's plan. Definitely not. He does not want our whole denomination to fall apart. Now, I want to read to you a very significant quote. 
Uh, this is on page 78 of my book. This is a very much quoted quote from people many times who unfortunately have separated from our official denomination. And this is what she said. Listen to this carefully. And this is the quote is from uh, uh, series B, volume 7, page 39. Wait a minute. Get the quote right. Yes, 39 and 40. It says, the enemy of, she said, the enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists. And that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith. And engaging in the process of reorganization. Sort of like a new denomination. Were this reformation to take place, what would be the result? What would be the result? Remember, Alpha, Omega. If the deceptions come in, there's a result. It's kind of like planting a seed. You know, if you plant a seed in the garden, you get a, a plant. And if you plant the alpha in a garden, it's going to lead to an omega. She says, what would be the result? The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be counted as an error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, so they've got that right. Virtue is better than vice. But God being removed, they would place their dependence upon human power, which without God is worthless. So if we don't trust in God and follow his word, what can we do? He says, uh, it's, it's worthless without God's power, it's worthless. Their foundation would be built upon the sand and the storm and the tempest would sweep away the structure. Now, uh, unfortunately, there are many ministries out there, and I'm not saying in here, but that are out there, and I've encountered many of them. They have videos, they have books, they have websites. Some of them even have churches, they have speakers, and they have concluded that this section that I've just read currently applies to the Seventh-day Adventist official organized denomination. They say, we are the new organization. We have left the principles of truth in the past, and as a result of their arguments, there are people that are leaving the Adventist church today, because they're saying this is us. This is the organized church, and we got to get out. Well, let me, let me say there is no real evidence that that theory is correct. Now, certain elements of that uh, statement certainly are happening. 
but as a whole, uh, the evidence is not there. And I'm going to prove to you in part three that the Alpha, at least at that time, in 1902 and 1903, that the Alpha of deadly heresies was totally obliterated. And you'll see it in the four o'clock meeting. So I hope that you'll come back for that because we're going to look at very carefully at a dream that was given to Sister White or whether, I don't know if it was a dream or a vision or we don't really know. She just said a scene passed in front of me where she saw a ship sailing in the fog and an iceberg ahead. And the voice of the captain spoke and said, meet it, hit it head on so it will go down so that the descriptions of what would happen if the ideas of the Omega I mean, the ideas of the Alpha had come into the church and there's a whole uprooting of our faith, an entire uprooting of our organization, a new organization. So in other words, the ship, instead of going this way, would be completely rerouted and go another direction. Did God want that to happen? No. Would he allow that to happen? Well, we'll find out. We'll find out at 4 o'clock, and we'll look carefully. And uh, I guess at this point, as I, as I kind of wind this up, I do believe that we all need to be on our guard because certainly the warnings of what happened during the 1900s, those warnings sound down the line to us. We need to be careful that we don't follow in the ways of Kellogg, that we don't have a system of intellectual philosophy that takes over our faith so that we're no longer rooted in the Bible and in Jesus and in the principles of our movement and of our message. We all need to be careful of that. But when it comes to the arguments that people are using today, and I'm going to show you at 4 o'clock that Kellogg's uh, theories in the living temple had to do with the father. They had to do with the son. They had to do with the Holy Spirit. They had to do with the Godhead. And they were a departure from biblical truth. And what happened was the Lord took that opportunity, just like the disappointment was his opportunity to teach the Adventists about the heavenly sanctuary and about the ark and about the law and about the Sabbath. And just like as we went down farther, the, uh, the early days was his opportunity to teach our people about the importance of organization and order and unity. And he took the opportunity during the Civil War when... The nation was distracted, and uh, our message was really not 
being received so much in America because people were distracted by the war. He took that opportunity to give information about the health message and to build up our church on the principles of health. And he took the uh, 1888 era as an opportunity to teach us the importance of focusing on Jesus and his full divinity and the magnitude of what he did on the cross to save us from our sins. And then he, then he also took the early 1900s crisis with Dr. Kellogg. Now God has a funny way of bringing good out of evil. You ever been through a trial in your life and God has turned your crisis into something good? A number of years ago, I went through a number of terrible, terrible crises. And uh, the Lord has used those crises to teach me the importance of not relying upon myself, not relying upon my mind, not relying upon my reason, not relying upon other people, but relying upon him and on his word more than anything else and on inspiration, the light which shines more and more to the perfect day. And he used the Kellogg crisis to teach Adventists the truth about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Godhead which many people are confused about these days. And it's so unfortunate. And I believe it's a deadly deception to take the statements of the spirit of prophecy about what would happen if the ideas of pantheism, if the alpha were to have come in to the church fully and to take those quotes which many people are doing today and applying them to the entire denomination of Seventh-day Adventists, which Ellen White said that if that were to happen, if the Alpha fully comes in, everything would be uprooted for God's chosen denominated people. And people are using those same quotes to basically separate from us as a chosen denominated people. You know, Satan has a very uh, brilliant way of maneuvering the mind to get a person to think that something is right when it's actually the opposite of the truth. And so I hope that in the final meeting uh, at four o'clock, it would be wonderful if every seat was filled <laughs> at four o'clock. We're going to get into the grand finale about what meted means, what happened during the Alpha Crisis, and also we'll see very clearly that none of us as individuals are immune from some Alpha getting into our hearts, which could lead to an omega in our lives. We don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen to me and I don't want it to happen to you. 
And the only way to avoid the alpha of deception and the omega which will result inside of our lives is for us to be rooted and grounded in the biblical alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who we studied about last night, who is who? It's Jesus Christ. That's right. Jesus wants to be everything to us. And uh, I've also been, I see I've got one minute and 41 seconds left. Uh, have you, any of you ever read the Arthur White series? Anybody read that? Boy, hardly any hands. I don't even see a hand. Uh, it's a six-volume set about the history of our church written by Ellen White's grandson, Arthur White. Uh, and it's a powerful series. If you want to make a project of reading some really good books, get the Arthur White series. And one thing that has really impressed me, in fact, I was reading it this morning in my worship that many times when Ellen White was in vision and came out or when she would speak, the result in the audience was phenomenal. People were so moved as the Holy Spirit just fell with power. And many times, people, one of the biggest impressions they walked away with was heaven is going to be so precious. Jesus is so precious. Living in the new Jerusalem is going to be glorious. And people were deeply impressed with these solid biblical truths that were down here for just a little while. We only have a short life down here. And when it's all over, the most important thing that any of us can, can do is to be ready for Jesus coming, to go up with him, to live in the new Jerusalem, to be clothed in white robes, to be surrounded by the saints of God of all ages, and to kneel and to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Thank you, Jesus for saving my life, saving my soul, forgiving my sins, changing my heart, giving me the Holy Spirit, teaching me the power of your word, and giving me an immortal existence because of your love and your grace. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we wind this up. Heavenly Father, may the power of the Holy Spirit come upon us. We all need revival. We all need to learn the principles of truth of your word. We need to understand the battle that we're in between God and the devil, between Jesus and Satan. Lord, help us not to go the path of Dr. Kellogg. Help us to remain humble, teachable, to kneel at the foot of the cross, and to be... Uh, so grateful for Jesus and his suffering and his death for us and his resurrection from the dead. Lord, bless us all and bring us back at four, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.